Okay, you all, let's go ahead and get going. Welcome to the end of the world. This is our class on Revelation, and um, otherwise known as the Apocalypse of John. The Apocalypse of John. And last week, we focused in on chapters... We did a lot, actually. Last week, we kind of um, focused on the last of the seven seals, and we moved, uh, we, we bounced around a bit from chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, and into 11. And um, what I'd like to do is just kind of finish up where I was last week. So uh, last week, we ended with sort of a cliffhanger, like a Batman episode before it goes to commercial. Will the Joker return? Will Batman make it through his plot? Well, today, um, I want to pick up where I left off. And what I did was what was called a futurist reading. That's how I ended the class last week, which was to say, this is how one might interpret the seven trumpets that are in Revelation, the seven trumpets. There are people who interpret it this way. And by kind of putting this out there, I don't mean, I'm not like making fun of it or something. I'm just saying this actually has a decent amount of traction in certain forms of contemporary kind of evangelical Christianity. And um, what I'm simply trying to flag is that there are other ways of reading Revelation. In fact, other ways that have much more track record throughout the history of the church. And so the way that we read it last week, you know, to see Trumpet 1 is maybe mapping onto the aerial bombings during World War II, or uh, Trumpet 3 being about the nuclear meltdown at Chernobyl and water poisoning and such. Um, there are thicker, more literary ways of reading Revelation that I think are consonant with the intentions of John, the author. And so what I'd like to do this week is talk a little bit about a literary reading, and then we'll get into talking about these two witnesses. We'll talk about the woman. We'll talk about a dragon and some beasts, if we have enough time, because we're also starting like, you know, 15 minutes late. So let me first just say, uh, I wanted to put up some art here just to inflame your imagination. Here you have one of the riders of the apocalypse. This is um, a guy, Rufino Tamayo, who trained in Paris, but I believe is a Mexican, um, a Mexican artist. And um, this is based off of a, a 17th century French translation of John's apocalypse. And uh, it's not, which wouldn't be that different than like what we have here, but it's an interesting kind of Mexican, French and, and you know, influenced Mexican take on one of the writers of the apocalypse. Thought you might find it interesting. If not, just ignore it. But next we have William Blake. And uh, Blake has a number of, of lithographs and, and, um, and images of John's apocalypse. And this is called The Great Red Dragon. And the woman clothed with sun. And we'll actually be, we'll be touching on this a bit today. But here is uh, Blake's, Blake's vision of the great red dragon and the woman clothed with sun. So let's do a literary reading just briefly of the seven trumpets. And then we're going to move forward. I don't want to spend too much time on this. 
But you might remember that we were looking through the seven trumpets that stretched out from uh, chapter 7 forward and, um, or I'm sorry, chapter 8 forward. And there is the kind of his, the, 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 the futurist way of reading it, which is to identify it with contemporary events. And then the literary reading sees it within the context of its own narrative. So it asks, what has the narrative already told us about what's going on? And of course, we've been going through it. But let's look, for instance, at Revelation 8, 1 through 5. This is not on your handout, by the way. So if you have a Bible on your phone or a Bible, you can use that. So, when the Lamb, this is chapter 8, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them, right? And then we see that the seven trumpets are opened up. But the last prayers, um, well, let me just read actually a few more verses. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angels. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So there's one thing that's repeated in there. It's the prayers of the saints. And when is the last time within the narrative itself that we've heard about the prayers of the saints? So the prayers of the saints are kind of issuing forth like incense. They're, they're, they're you know, wafting up to the lion lamb who is on the throne. Well, if we look back at chapter 6, so we're mining within the narrative to find the meaning moving forward, which is just good literary reading principles. Um, chapter 6, verse 10. We see they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So these are the prayers of the saints that are now kind of wafting up like incense into the nostrils of the lion lamb who sits on the throne. They cry out, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? Right? We said this is the cry of the psalmist. How long, O Lord? And now God begins to avenge them. So hail and fire, mountains are thrown into the sea, water is turned bitter, light is stricken from the sky, armies ha- show up and battle ensues. And then we read in chapter 9, humankind still did not repent. Humankind still did not repent. In other words, nothing changes. So God could send destruction after destruction. He could send tribulation after tribulation, but nothing would change. So we have six trumpets, and there has been no repentance. So the first six trumpets on the literary reading is that God has listened to the prayers of the saints and has kind of shaken the earth, and nothing has changed. And so then we get to the seventh trumpet, and the question is, well, what then will God do if nothing has changed? What will make a change? And then we read in chapter 10, verse 8, Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me, saying again, Go take the scroll that is, to, that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. 
and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter, and I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So here we get this image of, just as we see in, in, in Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, we, we see this image of, of the scroll being consumed, which is to say of the word of God being internalized within the hearer, who is then told to prophesy, to speak, to bear witness to this word that is internalized. So the question again is, what changes the world after the seven trumpets? Well, it's the word of God. I'm sorry, I said um, that that was from Zechariah. It's actually an image from Ezekiel. You'll remember from Ezekiel where he's told to eat the book or the scroll and to prophesy to the world about God. So remember, um, apocalyptic genres or apocalyptic literature, they do this within the genre. They're constantly pulling from other parts of scripture. And so he's like taking a stock apocalyptic metaphor and then he's plugging it into the text and sort of repurposing it. So that in Ezekiel was about Ezekiel prophesying to the world about God. And here we see once again the word internalized and John is told to prophesy to the world about the word who is God. The word that now is inside him. The word that is indwelling him. This is how God chooses to communicate with this world. It's not the first seven or six trumpets. It's not plague after plague, destruction after destruction. It's not thunder and lightning. It's not mountains falling down into the ocean. Remember, Mount Vesuvius, I think, erupted in 70 or something like that. So that would have been fresh in their memory. I mean, they would have, this imagery would have had a lot of traction within their lives. But it's not that. God creates a witness through the word that indwells those who are his. And that witness is apparently what is going to change things. Isn't that beautiful? So this creates lasting change. Um, so, so let's read, um, let me see. Well, let me just flag in, in chapter 11, where we left off last week, was we said that if you read this in sort of a futurist way, where you're equating the various trumpets to apply to Chernobyl or to Hitler or whomever, then you have to take um, the, the, the final image of the two witnesses going into the temple kind of along the same trajectory. But that means that because there is no temple presently in Israel, because the first was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and the second was destroyed by Vespasian, um, that if, if that's how it's going to happen in some sort of literal fashion, if it's not like an apocalyptic metaphor for something, then that means a third temple has to be created, which means that people need to be attentive to whether or not a third temple is coming about. Because, you know, that's this narrative unfolding in history and such. But, and this is why there is so much, particularly among like evangelical Christians, attentiveness to the Holy Land and to 
You know, is, is the temple happening? Is now the moment? Are they finally like rebuilding it? You know, what's going to happen with the Dome of the Rock and such, right? So there's this sort of um, omnipresent kind of fascination with the temple. And I mean, it's awesome. Don't get me wrong. But it's rooted in this sort of speculative reading of the book of Revelation. But then the question is, if the temple that is described here is not a rebuilding of a literal temple, then what is the temple? Because once we get into the beginning of chapter 11, it says, then I was giving, given a measuring rod like a, like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship there. I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will be like olive trees and lampstands and such before the Lord. What's that about? How do you measure a temple if it's not a literal temple? Well, we've already heard of the temple in the narrative. This is the principle. We always look within the narrative to see where has it already used that concept. In chapter 3, verse 12, um, I am coming soon, hold fast to what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will never go out of it. I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Right? So what's going on here? Well, remember, just as Domitian built his temple with the 24 pillars that were the 24 elders each carved into um, in, into the temple that holds humbly himself up on top of it and like the biggest statue we've ever found of an emperor before. So this image is being kind of transposed onto the church that actually uh, the, the true temple are those who, through the witness of blood or through the witness of worship, which those are both the same thing, to give your life literally or to give your life figuratively, Both of those are acts of worship. They are the pillars of the temple through Christ. They are made into a temple. And actually, when you think about that, that makes a lot of sense when you read the rest of the New Testament. And when you read Paul, who refers to the early church as the temple of God, as the body of Christ, right? So this is not the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. This is the temple formed as God's people in whom God dwells, right? Again, we see this all over Paul. So if you're looking to the larger literary context, as John has already described it, then you'll see that it's not the new temple in Jerusalem, but how John has defined it throughout the literary context of the letter with the temple being identical to the larger body of Christ. Now, there's a great quote that comes from a man named Eugene Peterson who wrote this book called Reverse Thunder. I highly recommend it. And uh, he says this, The people who were taught to pray, the king, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, have just been told the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's Revelation 11.5. Really? He asks. In the climax... In the climax context of the seven trumpets, the believers' work of prayer is confirmed, but when they walk out the door to work the next morning, they will deal with the kingdom of Rome that hadn't become anything, except maybe worse, 
What does St. John have to say to that? Peterson asks, right? So this is the, the kind of perennial matter of being a Christian when you have values that might conflict with the values of surrounding cultures. The image in the New Testament is the church is a kind of a nucleus, a cell of health within the larger body of the cosmos. That doesn't mean that it doesn't have its own afflictions. Of course it does. It doesn't mean we're perfect. Not by any means, right? You've heard the saying that we're not a um, museum of saints but a hospital for sinners. That's true. But the question is, if these promises are given, but then I still have to go out and live in Rome and maybe lose my job because I worship Jesus now and not the emperor, I mean, how am I going to put bread on the table for my children? And that's what Peterson is asking. So let's unpack that question here a little bit. In chapter 11, we see the road to the consummation of all things, the ultimate victory of God declared, the new Jerusalem to come down from heaven, but then war arises in heaven. And now what we're going to spend the next few chapters unpacking is a battle. It's going to be awesome. By the way, that little uh, statue there is at St. George's in Nashville. It's um, it's St. George, and he's got his spear, and he's driving it. He's like crushing it through the dragon. And it's pretty awesome, but uh, one of my friends once, um, he was walking out at night, and there was a spotlight that was placed right in front of it, so at nighttime it would cast the image of St. George and the dragon onto the wall of the church, which is kind of cool. Anyways, that's not really relevant to this. But I thought it was cool. <laughs> um, so, so we see the seventh trumpet, battle ensues. So what then should we talk about? I want to talk about the way of the beast in Scripture. So battle is about to open up. And there's going to be cosmic warfare. And it's going to look like an Avengers movie if you made it in the first century. And this is picking up on narrative threads that run all throughout Scripture. I'm not making this up. This is, um, of course, the, the climax, kind of the, you know, all of Scripture is moving towards this. But if you look, for instance, in Genesis chapter 4, you see the story of Cain and Abel. And there has always been a tension between what we might call the way of, I don't know, the lamb and the way of the beast. And the way of the beast is the way of subhumanity. It is living a kind of beastly existence, not living up to the vocation that God has given us as humans made in his image. And so we see the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, and we see Abel who is given mastery over the beasts. That's not an insignificant detail of the narrative. And then we see Cain, who is given mastery over the ground. And they have a brotherly tiff, which is not uncommon. As someone who has a brother, I know that. right? But Abel was the keeper of sheep. Cain was a worker of the ground. Temptation ensues, there's brokenness within the family, and they have to ask themselves, how are we going to respond? 
So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, you will not will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you and you must rule over it. So here, God speaking to Cain uh, is, or, um, yeah, Cain is saying that, listen, I realize that, you know, you're jealous of, of the favor that I kind of bestowed on your brother. I mean, what siblings have, have not experienced that before, right? With their parents. Um, and God's point is kind of like, what is it to you if I want to show him love? I mean, he's my son too. But you have a choice, and, and you can choose to let, let this beastly way kind of eat your lunch. You can choose to live in this way moving forward, or you can choose the way of those who walk bearing witness to the image of God in them. Not the way of the beast, but the way of the lamb. So he has a choice, and of course, he chooses, instead of being a master over the ground, he becomes like the beast himself, and he kills his brother, and the blood of his brother cries out to God. We've already heard that image in Revelation too. It cries out to God, just like the prayer of the saints cry out to God. This way moves forward, the way of the beast. We see, um, what else did I put? Oh yeah, let me just advance here. We see Daniel chapter 7. We've already hung out in Daniel chapter 7, right? Daniel's visions of the four beasts. So now it's not just like one beast crouching at the door, working on Cain's impulses, getting him to live in enmity with his brother. Now it's four beasts. The beastliness has increased. And we see these four beasts, they emerge one that is like a lion, another like a bear, another like a leopard, a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. These four beasts. But then there is one like the Son of Man who emerges and basically schools the four beasts. Well, we've already seen Daniel 7 show up in the book of Revelation applied to Jesus. And... I've mentioned this before, but Daniel 7 had the kind of track record with the Jewish people that Martin Luther King's uh, junior speech, um, I Have a Dream, has with us, right? So if I say I have a dream, you know exactly where I'm going or who I'm quoting. And, and that also brings into what I'm saying a whole package of kind of um, intentions and language and a way of being in the world. And we see this has a similar dynamic as it's pulled up in Revelation. And it's, it's kind of high-fiving this narrative thread that runs throughout Scripture, that you can either be a part of the way of the beast, you can live in a subhuman way, or you can walk in the way of the Lamb, who, of course, is the true Passover slaughtered for us, for our sins, so that we might be set free. It's beautiful. Then, Revelation chapter 1. Again, we see the one who was like a son of man, picked up again. This is all context for what we're about to go into. So, if I, had a, 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 if I wanted to title our talk today something different, I would have 
named it after Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon movie. But in Revelation 4, we talked about Hebrew worship for living creatures. Okay, so John in his apocalypse, again, he's pulling different illustrations off his literary shelf and he's plugging them in, inspired by the Spirit. Revelation 5, he addresses the emperor cult. Revelation 6 through 7, he addresses the peace of Rome and the Roman Empire. If you think that that's where you can ultimately and eternally hang your hat, have fun with that, John says. Chapters 8 through 11, he speaks to the fact that death is defeated by the lion lamb through wrath that looks like love. Remember that? How, how we saw that the wrath of God as it opened up, it looked like a love that created a people drawn together in reconciliation. A new people. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation gathered before the throne and worship. Today, we'll see a retailing of Greek mythology to one of the most multicultural contexts of the ancient world. So, let me just drill down into that a bit. I said John's been pulling all sorts of apocalyptic stock metaphors off the shelf. He's been using kind of other imagery from you know the world of Judaism, the world of, of, of Rome, and such. But today, he's actually pulling from Greco-Roman mythology. And uh, this is a story that everyone would have known about. And they would have, in reading chapters 12 and 13, made this connection. And we would not make this connection, but they would have. So let me just briefly read chapters 12 and 13, and then we'll jump in. And a great sign uh, appeared in heaven... A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. We're getting to the battle. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent. That's such like a trash talk thing. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Does that sound familiar? For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. 
But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. What on earth is going on there? That is a crazy passage crazy it's like it is like an avengers movie you see what i'm saying it's very bizarre so five minutes i just want to cover this real quick what we see is that there is a struggle between the lamb and his host with the archangel michael and the what we might call the satanic trinity the dragon who represents satan or the devil or the serpent think genesis 3 the beast or the monster who rises out of the sea. We might think of Leviathan in Isaiah 27. And then there's the third, the beast, the monster rising up out of the earth. Think of the behemoth in Job. Also in the book of Job, remember, you know, the uh, demons are thrown down just like here. That's kind of an interesting parallel. We don't have time to develop that. Maybe next week. So think about the conflict and the characters. The drama of Revelation. What we might call the battle of trinities. Remember in the beginning of the book, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So there we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? This is one set of trinities. And we just saw another set of trinities, characters coming together in this cosmic battle. We see evil personified, the unholy trinity, and the harlot, who we'll see in a moment. We see one dragon and two beasts. Let me just read an extended quote from um, a guy named Michael Gorman. Here's what he says about this. This is an extended quote, so hang with me. He says, The dragon and his two minions are two of the most vivid characters in the apocalyptic drama. The dragon is explicitly identified as that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He's red, symbolize his dealing in death and his seven heads with diadems and ten horns, symbols of power. He's not only the deceiver, but also the ultimate persecutor of God's people, including the Messiah, which we've seen throughout the text, though his persecution can also be executed by humans who think they are doing God's will. See this in chapter 2 and 3. Remember, there's that the one Antipas who was killed in chapter 3. It references him in Revelation. Satan is the source of the deified, idolized human political power depicted in chapter 13. And this has already been vividly foreshadowed in the description of Pergamum as the site of Satan's throne. He says the beast of the sea is a kind of incarnation of this satanic power of persecution, deception, idolatry, also having seven heads and ten horns, which are later identified as hills, rulers, and client kings. And we're going to do a whole bunch with that. But it makes blasphemous public claims, this second beast, about its royal power, but the actual source of its power is the dragon. In response to the beast's resurrection-like recovery from a mortal wound, which is probably an allusion to um, stories about the return of Nero, 
people worshipped both it and the dragon, an obvious parody of the resurrection of Jesus and the resulting worship of God and the Lamb. Though the beast's reign is short, it commands international worship and engages in persecution of the church as one would expect of the offspring of Satan. Its special number is 666, and it has been called the Antichrist. Though the term itself is actually absent from the book of Revelation. So that's not insignificant. The term Antichrist does not show up in the book of Revelation. But of course, that's one of the terms that everybody thinks of when they think of the book of Revelation. It's not even in there. So that's wrapped up in a kind of imposition of a certain kind of reading onto the text. Most certainly, Nero is the beast. And I'll say more about this next week. But in short, here's a great quote about it. Who's the beast? The beast is not merely Rome or Nero. It is the inhuman, anti-human arrogance of the empire, which has come to its expression in Rome. But not only there, all who support the cultural religion in or out of church, however lamb-like they may appear, are agents of the beast. All propaganda that entices humanity to idolize human power is an expression of this beastly power that wants to appear lamb-like. So you see what's going on there? It's picking up on all of these narrative threads, starting back in Genesis. And it's saying there are these two ways of being in the world. Which way are you going to follow? So, the red dragon in chapter 12. I'm going to give you a little bit of a teaser, and then I'm going to pick it up next week. To live under Rome was one of the most multicultural contexts in human history. And in Rome, there was a saying that you learned Hebrew for worship, Aramaic for conversation, Greek for trade, and Latin for politics. So you would be familiar not only with uh, your own language, but the language and stories of others, and especially of Greco-Roman mythology. And one of the stories in Greco-Roman mythology, the Romans love Greek stories, was the story of Leto. Some of you might know this. In this, the god Zeus comes down to earth and he has relations with a woman named Leto and they end up having two children. She becomes pregnant with twins, Apollo and Artemis. And Apollo was a very important god in the Roman pantheon. As the son of Zeus, he wore a lot of different hats. He's the god of a lot of different things. But his most famous title is the light of the world. Remember when Jesus says, I am the light of the world? Artemis was also important. And she was the goddess of the hunt, childbirthing, virginity, wild animals, and more. And so while her mother, Leto, was in labor with Apollo and Artemis, Python comes. And this is a beastly dragon monster who represents chaos. The Babylonians called him Tiamat, the Greeks Leviathan, the Romans Python. And just as Leto is about to give birth, this dragon like crouches down. And basically, he is planning on eating Apollo and Artemis. And as it's about to happen, Zeus 
drops down, scoops them up, and takes them away. He takes them to Olympus, and as a gift for being born, he gives them each an arrow, a special arrow. And Artemis uses her arrow to become the goddess of the hunt, but Apollo stays in Olympus for three and a half years, otherwise 1,260 days. Does that number sound familiar? Because you just read it. And then he comes down with his arrow to fight the forces of chaos and injustice, and he kills Pithon and brings in a new era of peace and prosperity for humanity. You see, this is Greek mythology, but the Romans were all about it. In fact, the Roman emperor was often compared to Apollo. He was the one who brought peace and prosperity to the world. He was the one who slaughtered chaos and brought order. The emperor was called the savior of the world, the source of light, the bringer of peace. Anyone under Rome would have recognized what John is here doing. He's taking this Greco-Roman myth and he's subverting it for his purposes. The purposes of which we will unspell, we will, whatever, unpack. That's what I meant to say. We will unpack next week. Okay. Thank you all for coming and hope to see you next week. Oh, not yet. It's, Is it really bad? Well, it's demeaning.